Greetings from uh, rainy Canada. We have been uh, having a good time up here trying to get dad's house ready for him to return from uh, physical therapy rehab, which he calls prison. And uh, we're expecting him back home probably next Sunday. He does thank you for your prayers and thank you for the card that he received in the mail. So today's message is a little unusual. We have taken questions in advance on the topic of various topics of prophecy. And uh, we're going to just go through the questions one by one and give you biblical answers for them. And um, so we're going to start with the first question. Someone asked, should we expect a revival before the rapture? Uh, many believers actually expect that there will be a worldwide revival where people will come to the Lord in droves just before the rapture. And so the question is, is this uh, something that we should expect? So in answer to that question, I think it's always appropriate to pray for revival in the lives of believers, that believers who are cold in their faith or walk with the Lord might have become hissing hot again for the Lord. And it's always appropriate to pray that the Lord will provide a harvest of people coming to the Lord. And certainly in parts of the world today, there is an awakening and many are coming to the Lord. This is particularly true in countries where there is significant persecution. The Bible contains many verses about revival. Um, and about a return to the Lord. But we have to be very careful when interpreting these verses. One of the keys to understanding Bible prophecy is this. All scripture is written for us, but not all scripture is written to us. So if you look at the context of the verses that are often used to support an end-time revival— you will notice that most of them, if not all of them, refer to Israel and the Lord's work in drawing Israel back to himself. And there will be a time of revival, repentance, and a return to the Lord at the end of the tribulation period dealing with Israel. Um, so always be careful about the context of the verses that you're looking at uh, before assuming that it is before the rapture. Uh, the gospel will still go out until the coming of the Lord uh, during the church age, but the scripture actually points to a decline in the spiritual temperature of the professing church. Not everybody who claims to be a Christian is a Christian. And so the Bible tells us that there will be a time of departure uh, prior to the Lord's return. Let me give you some verses. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. And you might want to have your Bibles available uh, because we're going to look at a lot of scriptures this morning. So in that passage, it says this, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The term falling away refers to apostasy, and it is a rebellion within the professing church that will result in the departure from the truth of what is revealed in God's word. 
The Bible warns of this apostasy in the following verses. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, we, we read this, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, in other words, they seem religious, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Seems to me we are in that time frame now. This is a time of departure and perilous times. But Second Peter also says in verses one through nine, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And he goes on to describe that in more detail in uh, the following verse, in the following verses, uh, verses one through or two through nine. Uh, in Second Peter three, three through six, we read, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. The idea, and what Peter's trying to get across there, is that people acted the same way prior to the flood. And that is how the world and even professing believers, not real believers, but professing believers will behave prior to his coming. That's happening now. First John 2, 18 and 19 says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Now remember that John wrote this 2000 years ago. So we have been in the last hour for 2,000 years. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. In other words, there were, again, professing believers in the early church that apostatized and went out from them and began to teach uh, um, unfavorable or uh, unbiblical doctrines. There have always been antichrists and rebellion and apostasy from the beginning of the church age. However, we have never seen a departure from the faith as we are currently seeing. Pastors 
who deny the deity of Christ, churches that are embracing sins such as homosexuality and other abominations, a wholesale neglect of the truth of God's word, and an abandonment of the fundamentals of the faith. Brothers and sisters, all these things are already coming to pass. We are in the last days, and the church is in the last days, um, as is described in Revelation 3, 14, and 22. If you remember in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the Lord walks among his churches, which represent church, the church age, um, but different uh, time periods of the church age, the last of which is the church of Laodicea. That is the church um, that I believe represents the current church time frame. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesol that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And this, we often use this verse with reference to um, the Lord knocking on the heart of unsaved people, but that's not really the context. The context here is that the Lord in the last days, in our time frame, is standing outside the door of his own church. And he is knocking. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant uh, to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And so just in quick conclusion of that question, I, I do believe that many will still come to know the Lord in these last days, but the general consensus of the scriptures that we looked at is that there will be a departure and a very severe departure, which we are currently seeing uh, in our time frame, which just indicates that the coming of the Lord is very, very near. So the second question was this, can people who heard the gospel but did not believe the gospel be saved after the rapture during the tribulation period? In other words, someone heard the gospel today and the Lord comes tonight, he raptures his church tonight, and they're left behind. Can they then say, oh, I missed the rapture, I'm going to trust the Lord and be saved? Let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about this. And, and several people asked very similar questions to this, so I'm just going to kind of lump them all together. The first thing is found in 2 Corinthians 6.2, the Bible urges people to trust the Lord today. While you have the opportunity, now is the time to trust in the Lord. If you have never heard the gospel, it's very simple, and it's this. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the punishment for your sins. He died to set you free from the punishment and the eternal judgment that is coming. 
And he urges all to come to him and to trust him for salvation. He will forgive your sin. He will cleanse you and he will make you his own. Um, the Bible says, as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become the children of God. So the Bible urges us. It says in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, for he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so the Bible appeals to unbelievers to trust in the Lord now, today, not tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. And so I urge you, if you don't know the Lord, trust in him today. We don't know what a day will bring forth, and tomorrow will be too late. So the next part of the answer to the question is that there will be some in the tribulation that cannot be saved. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 9 through 12, we read this. The coming of the lawless one, that is the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. In other words, they had an opportunity to be saved during the church age, but they rejected it. And so in verse 11, it says, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they, may, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. From these verses, it appears that those who could have trusted in Christ during the church age, the age of grace is what it's also known as, but rejected the gospel, will not be given a second chance in the tribulation period. Instead, those who reject the truth will actually believe the lie. And the lie is that the Antichrist is God, and that he sets himself up as God, and they worship him as God. And so God will send upon them a strong delusion so that they will not believe the truth, but that will, they will believe a lie, and they will worship um, the Antichrist as God, and they will be condemned with him. So there are some who cannot be saved during the tribulation period, but there are some who will be saved. For those who never heard the gospel in the age of grace, they will still have an opportunity to believe the gospel. However, most people or many of the people who come to know the Lord during the tribulation period will be martyred for their faith. It'll be very difficult to be a believer during that period of time, and it would be at the uh, potential of martyrdom. All right, so the third question is related to the second question. How will people come to know the Lord during the tribulation period? There are at least three specific um, groups who will be preaching the gospel. Uh, first of all, God tells us in Revelation chapter 7 that he will set apart 12,000 men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's 144,000 witnesses. Uh, to, to be witnesses for him on the earth. They will be sealed by God and will preach 
the gospel of the kingdom of God and call on unbelievers to repent of their sins and to enter the kingdom of God. And some will come to faith as a result of their preaching. The Bible tells us that. It actually gives us a glimpse of that in Revelation where many of those people are martyred and cry out in worship um, to the Lord uh, for saving them. Uh, the second group of people who will witness are two men. Some think it is Elijah and Moses, but we don't actually know that for sure. But there are two men who will be raised up by God, who will be witnesses for three and a half years. Uh, we see that in Revelation 11:3. They will perform many signs, many miracles, and call people to repentance. Um, their primary ministry, however, is judgment. Um, but th there's an opportunity for people under their ministry to come to know the Lord as well. And finally, the third group, I say group, it's actually just one uh, individual being, and it is an angel that God raises up to actually go around the entire earth uh, proclaiming um, the gospel to the entire world. This is found in Revelation 14, uh, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. This will actually be the last opportunity for people during the tribulation period to respond to the gospel, the everlasting gospel, and to believe on the Lord and enter into the kingdom of God. Some during the tribulation will be saved. Most will harden their hearts. And many who are saved will be martyred. Now, I want to make a point here, and we're going to touch on this a little bit later, that during the tribulation period, those who are saved are not part of the church. The church has already been um, raptured to be with the Lord prior to the beginning of the tribulation period. Now, they're still saved. They're still believers, but they're not uh, part of the church. Okay, question number four. Um, are people saved in a different way during the tribulation? Do they become part of the church? So, okay, I got ahead of myself. Um, so let me, let me say it this way. Salvation has always been on the basis of God's grace through faith. And so I want to point out a passage of scripture to you. Do you remember the account in Genesis in which God made a promise to Abraham. And in Romans 4, 3, it says this, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, if you go back to that passage, you'll see that there was no mention in that passage of Jesus dying on the cross for our salvation. Rather, God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude, that as many, he would have as many children as the stars of the, of the sky. And Abraham simply believed God. God made a promise. 
Abraham believed the promise and God said, because you believe me, I am, I am crediting to your account my righteousness. And so Abraham was saved on the basis of faith in God. Now, the message of salvation that goes out today is a simple message. It is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And as many as believe that message and trust in him uh, as their Savior and Lord, they're saved on the same basis. It's on the basis of faith. We simply take God at his word and say, Lord, that is so simple. I simply accept Jesus as my Savior, and we are saved on the basis of faith. In the tribulation period, uh, the gospel message will go out that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, and that if they believe in him, they will enter into the kingdom of God, not the church, but the kingdom of God. And those who believe that gospel message that is proclaimed during the tribulation will be saved on the same basis. The basis is by faith in what the Lord has promised. So we are saved on the basis of faith in God's promise that who, whoever believes in Jesus is saved and they will be saved on the basis of faith in the promise of God to save them and bring them into his kingdom. Uh, again, I emphasize this, that although salvation has always been on the basis of faith in God, not all believers are part of the church. So Abraham, clearly he was saved. He is uh, set up uh, in, in the scripture as the father of faith, and yet he's not part of the church. Yet he is truly saved. Tribulation believers will not be part of the church, yet they will be truly saved. And so we always have to remember that God has um, a program in place. The church was a mystery in the Old Testament. It began on the day of Pentecost. It ends on the day of the rapture. And only those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ during that period of time are members of his one body, the bride, the church, and that one body is made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. Those who believe in the Lord outside of that time frame are part of the kingdom of God, but they are not part of the bride of Christ. These are two very distinct groups of saved people, and, and it's important to remember this in your study of the scripture, so you don't get confused as to who's um, who the Lord is talking about. We should also mention here that in many prophetic passages in the Bible, it is clear that during the tribulation period, there will be many people who come to know the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord, and they will submit to him as their king. And what we call this individual salvation. But God is working on a bigger program, not just including uh, individual salvation, but he's also working on a program that he started with Israel, and that is to bring them to national salvation. These verses refer to the salvation of the nation of Israel, to the Lord Jesus Christ, not only as their Savior and Lord and Messiah, but also their King. And so 
We find this in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 33. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. What is the mystery? Well, let, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel, nationally, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Paul just is fascinated by the program of God for Israel, and he, he bursts forth with praise in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And so this passage speaks about the national salvation that will ultimately come to Israel. Israel has not been put away and rejected by God forever. God will once again, in the last days, during the uh, day of the Lord, uh, the seven-year tribulation period, he will work towards the salvation of individuals and the salvation ultimately nationally of uh, the nation of Israel. Okay, next question. Um, can you explain 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4? These are my questions. Number one, are these four verses describing the rapture? And two, is it possible that the first two seal judgments are before the rapture, where the first one reveals the Antichrist, and the second one is where peace is removed? Could that be the removal of believers? So, to answer the question, let's read the passage, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let me just stop here. The, the phrase day of Christ should actually read day of the Lord. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Okay. So let's answer the questions uh, by going through the verses uh, line by line. In verse 1, Paul is writing to believers um, that they are the church at Thessalonica. So we know they are that the context is writing to the church. And he's writing to them about the coming 
Um, that literally means the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together, notice the word, to him. So we are going to be gathered together to be with the Lord. We're going to be gathered together to him. So the key in this verse is the phrase, our gathering together to him. And Paul already described that event in the first letter to the Thessalonians in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, where it talks about the rapture. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming, and we will be caught up together with him in the clouds. We're gathered together to him, that is, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This first verse is clearly talking about the rapture. So in answer to your first question, yes. The first verse is talking about the rapture. In verse 2, Paul shifts to a different topic. And uh, to prove that the Thessalonians, who were suffering terrible persecution and thought they were in the tribulation period, could not possibly be in the tribulation period. And so the second, third, and fourth verses, and so on, are not talking about the rapture. The first verse is. The rest is talking about uh, Paul's evidence to prove to them that they're not in the tribulation period. And so um, the topic is the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is found in many places in the Bible. And the Thessalonians had been troubled because some, some people um, had begun to disrupt the peace that they had in the midst of their tribulation. And began to say, well, it's no wonder you're in tribulation. You're, you're suffering. You're in the tribulation. And um, they were troubled by this. And so Paul is trying to set them straight and encourage them that although they are suffering terribly, they were not actually in the tribulation period. And he gives them several reasons to prove that they had not missed the rapture and that uh, if the Lord were to come during their lifetime, they would still be raptured prior to the tribulation period. The day of the Lord is a time of judgment, and we've already looked at this in previous weeks. There are 21 judgments in all, and they are severe, terrible judgments that destroy um, the major portion of the world population and, and, and terrible damage to the earth itself. No believer who is part of the church will ever go through any of these judgments, and Paul explains it this way. First of all, they couldn't already be in the tribulation because in the tribulation, there is first a falling away. This is a major event of apostasy. Now, we are already experiencing uh, apostates in the world today, as has always been true uh, during the church age. I've had face-to-face confrontations with apostates, and um, we've seen this throughout church history. But here in Thessalonians, he is referring to a very specific event. If you look at verse 4, it is the idolatrous and blasphemous idol that is set up by the Antichrist um, in the temple of God, and, and and he will call on people to worship him as God. This is the epitome 
of apostasy. It is the pinnacle of apostasy, if you want to call it that way. And that's what Paul is referring to in the context. And so they couldn't already be in the tribulation because that has not happened. Second, they couldn't already be in the tribulation because the man of sin, the son of perdition, also known as the Antichrist, must first be revealed. But when will the Antichrist be revealed, according to Paul? He must be revealed during the tribulation. We're not going to know who he is. He's not going to be revealed to the church prior to the tribulation period. So if the Antichrist hasn't been revealed, you can't possibly be in the tribulation period. And since the Antichrist won't be revealed until the first seal judgment, we looked at that some weeks ago, believers won't be here. So this answers the question about the timing of the first and second seal judgment. Paul is encouraging the believers that in light of the order of the events that the scripture uh, puts out for us, the rapture comes first, verse 1, then the Antichrist is revealed, then anarchy comes, that is, peace is gone, but anarchy reigns. They, because of this order of events, they cannot possibly be in the tribulation period, and we can't possibly be in the tribulation period and won't be in the tribulation period. Third, they couldn't already be in the tribulation period because of the order of events spelled out in Scripture. It is later in this chapter that Paul expressly tells them the order of events. So in verse 7 of this chapter, it says that the restrainer, that is the Holy Spirit, who indwells believers uh, in the church, will be taken out of the way. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, Satan has a plan to set his antichrist in place of Christ, but he is being restrained from doing so at the present time. Uh, Only he who now restrains will continue to restrain or will do so until he is taken out of the way. The fact that the Thessalonians still remained on the earth, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is clear evidence that they are not in the tribulation, and neither will we be in the tribulation um, as well. Because when the Holy Spirit is removed, the restrainer is removed, so will we be removed. Second, uh, Paul says that the Antichrist is then revealed. And it says, and then the lawless, the lawless one. So the restrainer is removed, and then the lawless one, the Antichrist, is revealed. That is the beginning of the first seal judgment. And of course, this will be followed by the rest of the judgments we discussed over the past several weeks. The fact that the Antichrist has not been revealed and will only be revealed as the first seal judgment proves that the Thessalonians are not in the tribulation and neither will the Antichrist be revealed until after the rapture, so we won't be here either. I hope that answers the question for you. Um, The Antichrist will then cause a great falling away, um, that event that we talked about earlier, as he demands worship as if he is God in verses three and four. 
Paul makes it very clear in Thessalonians, uh, both in in, um, the first book and the second letter of Thessalonians, that believers will not be here for any of the tribulation period. So just as a um, boost to previous sermons, you might want to listen once again. Just be refreshed by messages I gave some years ago um, on 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, for further details. Okay, looks like we have time for a couple more questions. Um, Somebody writes, I'm still confused. Some popular authors suggest that the church will go through either part of the tribulation or all of the tribulation. Is there an answer to this? Well, we just answered that, but let's expand on it just just a little bit. We hold a position at Calvary Bible Chapel, which is which is called the pre-tribulation rapture. In other words, Jesus is coming to rapture his church prior to the tribulation period, pre-tribulation rapture. And the reason we hold this position is based on the literal method of interpretation of the scriptures. We also believe in a dispensational interpretation of the scriptures. And what that means is that God has a program through the ages that is very specific, and it is um, broken down into segments. And so there are multiple dispensations, some of which are already past, um, the way he administers things on the earth, And we are currently in what is called the church age. That is a specific dispensation um, that we hold to. Um, And so once the church age or the age of grace is completed, um, then God will start up his program once again with his people, Israel. These methods of interpretation, the um, literal method of interpretation and the dispensational interpretation of scripture uh, demonstrate that there are two very distinct groups of people with whom God has a divine plan. God has a divine plan for Israel and God has a divine plan for the church. In the Old Testament, the church was a mystery. In other words, it wasn't revealed until the New Testament. And God's purposes and plans for Israel temporarily stopped when they rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah at the end of the 69th week of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. If you weren't here for that teaching, go back a few weeks and, and listen to that sermon, and it will kind of put things in perspective. God then revealed, after they rejected Christ as the Messiah, God then revealed a plan he had already had in his mind from eternity past. God's purposes and plans for the church began at the day of Pentecost, and they must be completed in full before he completes the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. You cannot mix the two plans together. The plans and purposes of God for the church and Israel are completely separate. And if you mix them up and you say, well, the church is part of the 70th week of Daniel, that totally mixes up God's purposes and plans, and you run into terrible confusion with the interpretation of Scripture. 
We've already discussed at length the prophecies of the 70th week of Daniel. So go back and listen to those if you weren't here for them. Um, so there are two things that God, once the church age is complete, the rapture takes place. Then God begins his uh, final 70th week in dealing with his purposes and plans with Israel. And he also deals with the times of the Gentiles that must be fulfilled. Both of these two prophetic events will happen simultaneously uh, during the seven-year tribulation period. But noticeably absent from the tribulation is the church, which will already be raptured before the tribulation begins. It's interesting to me that there are people, believers, who have a different view and think that um, the church uh, will be uh, will suffer halfway until halfway point of the tribulation or even to the end of the tribulation period. But when you talk to them, they have to admit that our view of the pre-tribulation rapture is the only view that actually takes a literal, not figurative view of end times. And they clearly admit this in their writings. Um, it's interesting also to note that the nature of Daniel's 70th week of prophecy has to do with God's wrath, indignation, punishment, destruction, and darkness. These words are used for the entire period of time of the tribulation, not merely part of it. The scripture speaks plainly to the church in 1 Thessalonians 5 9 and says this For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to that, Paul adds, to comfort one another. Well, there's no comfort to the church if the church is going to have to suffer through the tribulation period. But Paul says to comfort one another with the knowledge of the fact of the rapture, which necessarily avoids the tribulation period. Now, if you have your Bibles, let's turn for a moment to 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. And I love this passage of scripture because you see so clearly the distinction that God makes between those who will suffer during the tribulation period and those who will not. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, brethren obviously is the church believers. You, the church believers, have no need that I should write to you, church believers. For you, church believers, yourselves, church believers, know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they, unbelievers, say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, unbelievers as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they, unbelievers, shall not escape. But you, church believers, brethren, church believers, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you, church believers, as a thief. You, church believers, are all sons of light and sons of the day. We, the church believers are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us, the church believers, 
not sleep as others, unbelievers, as, as they um, do, but let us, church believers, watch and be sober. For those unbelievers who sleep, sleep at night, and those unbelievers who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day, church believers, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet of hope, uh, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us, church believers, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, church believers, that whether we, church believers, wake or sleep, we, the church believers, should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other, church believers, and edify one another, church believers, just as you, church believers, also are doing. I don't think this passage could be any clearer. The distinction is very, very clear. But if you want more, in 2 Peter 2, we have even more. That um, in 2 Peter, we read that God does not spare his judgment on unbelievers, but he does spare believers from judgment. And he gives multiple illustrations of this. First one is in verse four, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. But in saying that, it's also, you have to recognize that he did, that he did spare the angels who did not rebel. The second illustration is in verse 5. God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. What is he saying? Noah and his family were in God's ark of safety. He spared them from judgment, but he did not spare the rest of the ancient world. Third, God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. And verses six through eight, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, Lot, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Clearly, God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and they suffered punishment while God delivered Lot. The obvious conclusion is found in verse 9. Then the Lord, because of what he's already done in history, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Brothers and sisters, we are not going through any of the tribulation period. God is so clear in his word. Praise God. And this is what brings comfort and hope to believers. Well, we have multiple questions more. Um, I'm going to end with one. Um, um, 
actually, we're not. We're going to end right here. Uh, it's just going to take too long to go through the next couple of questions. So I hope this was helpful today. I know that there are many other questions that you have, um, and certainly you could talk to me uh, or write to me, and I can, I can answer those for you. But uh, go back and listen to the messages we've already had on um, Matthew 24 and also the series that I did on 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Probably most of these answers um, are, I mean, these questions are answered in those uh, messages. So thank you for being with us today. Let me just close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the promises of your word. We thank you how faithful you are. We thank you that you have promised to the church that we will be raptured, um, that you are going to come to uh, the clouds and that you will, uh, that there will be a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and that the dead in Christ shall rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. What a comfort and help this is to us and what a hope we have because we know you. We do pray, Lord, for any who still have not trusted in you that today might be the day of salvation for them. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.